Well, it really is a joy and a privilege to be gathered together. Uh, We think, as Ryan prayed for the country of Afghanistan, I uh, just read something from a a church leader in Afghanistan, a Christian church, who uh, received a letter, a report from uh, the Taliban saying, we know where you live, we know who you are, and uh, they were looking to shut them down. And uh, this church said, we're not going anywhere as the Taliban move deeper and deeper into the country, they're, they're hunkering down and they're uh, faithfully proclaiming God's word. And it's just a powerful reminder of the privilege we have to come together and to sit under God's word. This morning, I want to consider a number of things. And I want us to think about the concept of remembering, to remember Remembering things is important. I, I don't know if you feel the same way about this, whether uh, memory comes easy for you, whether it's a little bit more of a challenge, but to remember things is important. You think of remembering birthdays or anniversaries or appointments. It matters that you remember things. Now, do you have a good memory? If you do or don't have a good memory, do you put value on remembering things? I want to share with you one of my favorite quotes about memory and remembering things. And it comes from, this is is why it's my favorite quote. It comes from your very own elder, Alex Fraser. Okay, and I wrote this down verbatim. Listen to the profound wisdom that we can gather out of this quote about memory. Alex Fraser said, Someone was complimenting me on my memory, but I can't remember who it was. Was it you? verbatim. That was exactly what he said. And it wasn't a joke. It wasn't a joke. It was 100% like, oh, like, yeah, anyway. Now, as funny as that is, uh, Alex actually does have an excellent memory. Uh, That was just a very weak moment. Uh, I could tell you exactly where we were sitting when it happened. But Alex actually models really well in our meetings, uh, our elders meetings, and as we talk about things for this church, I think Alex actually models better than most people the need to reflect the need to remember, the need to recount things and how that actually helps us make decisions, how that helps us move forward, how that helps us live in the here and now. And in Psalm 9 this morning, as we uh, read through Psalm 9 and work through Psalm 9, we find a lot of language about remembering and recounting and also about forgetting. Psalm 9 also reminds us of where we've been through this summer. We've been working through the first eight psalms up to this point. And there's a lot of similarities. We are revisiting a lot of similar themes and ideas that we've encountered already in the first eight psalms. Now in Psalm 9 alone, though, I want us to consider three important items to remember or, or things to remember as we work through it. And each of the 20 verses of Psalm 9 fall into one of these three things. So first, remember God. Second, remember sin. And third, remember grace. All right, I want you to remember the things to remember, okay? Remember God, remember sin, and remember grace. And through all of this, I pray that we're encouraged at the hope that we have. And so our big idea this morning is this. Get those pens and pencils ready, kids. Our big idea is this, God does not forget those who seek him. God does not forget those who seek him. One more time to really 
anchor it in. God does not forget those who seek him. Pray that we all come away this morning from our time in the word, understanding that profound truth. God does not forget those who seek him. And so let's seek him by looking at his word. So we'll be in Psalm 9. Uh, Again, as we've been working through the Psalms, Psalm chapter 9. And a lot of people, a lot of scholars have thought uh, throughout history, and even the way that Bibles have been put together, that Psalm 9 and 10 were actually originally one psalm. Now, there's a number of, you know, clues that would make people think that. Throughout it, there's this literary device of an alphabetic acrostic. So every single verse uh, follows a letter of the Hebrew alphabet through verse 9 and 10. Now, there are some missing, some are a little bit out of order, but that has been a clue for some people to say, maybe these were a package deal. Uniquely, too, which we'll encounter next week, Lord willing, is Psalm 10 has no title. That little uh, bit of information that we'll see in, in verse 9, or in chapter 9, starts to the choir master. Psalm 10 has none of that, and that's rare for the first book of the Psalms to have no title. And so people thought, well, maybe this is one thing. Uh, other scholars, though, will say the themes are similar but different enough. There's two separate ideas, and so that's why it's been categorized or broken into two psalms. And so just for your own information and edification, feel free to read Psalm 10 this afternoon and come to your own conclusion whether you think it was one psalm or two. But either way, we can be uh, encouraged and we can benefit from Psalm 9 uh, on its own as well as Psalm 9 and 10 working together, which we'll see next week. It's sort of like looking at a song uh, or listening to a song. Right? This is the, the days of having shuffle and Spotify as you hear a song in isolation. But that song originally was built in the structure of an album. And so that you can gain things by sometimes you know, hearing that song in its original context, the way that the you know, artist planned that the order would go. And other times you can still appreciate the song and its beauty on its own and its independence. A few other things just quick before we dive into every word of the psalm. You'll see in the title of Psalm 9, it says, To the choir master, according to the Mathlaben, a psalm of David. So this word, Mathlaben, here, we don't know exactly what it means. Uh, it's, again, like a lot of things we've run into in, psalm, in the psalms, is likely a musical or liturgical term. Uh, scholars seem to agree that the language here used would be sort of, you know, when you sing a Christmas carol or you sing an old hymn and it says, sing to the tune of, and then another song. Uh, that's what people have kind of come to the conclusion, that this Mathlaben was another song, a song talking about a son's death, but it's just saying, you know, sing Psalm 9 to the melody of this other song. And so that's sort of the conclusion that people have come to, but I'd like, I like to talk about these words that we don't understand so we don't just, you know, cruise over them. And you'll see at the end of verse 16, as we work through the psalm, there's another word that we bump into. Uh, it says, uh, you'll see it says, in the work of their own hands, Hegean, Selah. Those are the two words we run into. We've talked about Selah before. Again, musical, liturgical term, likely meaning, or a lot of people come to the conclusion that it means something around uh, the realm of pause. And this other one, Hegean, means to meditate or to muse. And so, again, scholars come to the conclusion that these two words together mean something along the lines of meditative pause. So as we work through, it just gives you a moment to kind of take a breath, to meditate, to pause. So those are the tricky bits. And now let's dive into God's word, seek his word, and be encouraged that God does not forget those who seek him. Let's read Psalm 9. To the choir master, according to the Mathlaben, a psalm of David, I will give thanks to Yahweh with my whole heart. 
I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne, giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But Yahweh sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Yahweh is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Yahweh, have not forsaken those who seek you. Remember, big idea. For you, O Yahweh, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to Yahweh who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid their own foot has been caught. Yahweh has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Hegeon, Selah. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Yahweh, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Yahweh. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. And so our first point this morning comes from our very first verse in our passage, and that is this, remember God. Remember God. David launches into this song by remembering God. Verse one, I will give thanks to the Lord. I will give thanks to Yahweh with my whole heart. I will recount, remember all of your wonderful deeds. Remember God. A couple observations we can pull out from this first verse alone. David's prayer is rooted in thanksgiving. He remembers God with thanksgiving. Christian, do we often enough thank God? He has given us life. He has given us breath. He has given us all that we know. Everything we see comes from him. So I hope that we all would grow and, and follow after David's modeling here, saying that we need to live lives of gratitude and thanksgiving beyond, you know, even a half-hearted nod before a meal. He remembers God with thanksgiving. Right? It's not half-hearted, but David says here, with his whole heart. So remember God with thanksgiving. Remember God with your whole heart. And we're familiar with the language of a heart in uh, a number of places through the Bible and, and really every love song that we hear today. Right? Not many people would read this and, and understand this to mean that David is talking about the muscle that pumps oxygenated blood through your body. He's talking about his very core, his very being, who he is deep down. 
He thanks God with his whole heart. Psalm scholar Gerald Wilson writes this, the depth of the psalmist's confidence and assurance is demonstrated by the fact that praise rises not from the lips, the external organs of speech, but from the totality of the psalmist's heart, the center of his moral decision-making and trust. And so from his whole heart, he gives thanks to God. And so our thanksgiving and worship should be with our very heart, our deepest being. Have you ever received a gift that was just beyond your wildest dreams? Think of the greatest gift you ever received. What was your reaction? Were you thankful with your whole heart, with your very being? I think of the hundreds of viral videos of somebody that receives a gift beyond their wildest dreams. Maybe you think it's popping into your mind right now, one that you've seen. Some of them are downright funny. They just lose their minds. They, they go absolutely bananas because they're giving thanks with their whole heart. Others are downright beautiful. I think of, again, the many viral videos that I fell down the very wonderful rabbit hole of watching this week of those who were colorblind, and yet they put on those enchroma glasses and they see color for the first time. And instantly they just burst into tears. They're seeing the world in a, a beautiful way that they've never experienced before. They're overflowing with thankfulness for that gift. Or maybe even more powerfully, you look at the people that are deaf and get those cochlear implants and they hear for the very first time and they're instantly just overwhelmed with emotion. They give thanks with their whole heart for this gift that they received. And so what makes those responses specifically powerful than, you know, just the person freaking out in the driveway because they got their new car or something is because they come from a place of struggle. They get relief. They get hope. And that's the context of this psalm. This psalm is, even though it starts with praise and it feels, you know, a little more cheery than some of the places we've been through the psalms, it's still categorically a lament psalm. The lens that David is looking through is through a place of affliction. And so we remember God with thanksgiving, remember with your whole heart, but remember God even when life hurts, and especially when life hurts. Again, David isn't worshiping from a place of smooth sailing. Look at verse 13. He says, Be gracious to me, O Yahweh. See my affliction from those who hate me, O you who lift me up from the gates of death. You could accuse David of being dramatic, but he is facing deep wounds, deep hurt, deep affliction. But it's through that lens that he launches in and praises God with thanksgiving and with his whole heart. It's because God lifts him out from the gates of death. It's like he sees color. It's like he hears sound. Right? He hears the voice of a loved one for the first time. This is what he says. In the second half of verse 1, he says, I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. David is thanking God and praising him amid real pain. It's almost like he's saying, how can I not praise? How can I not worship when I recount or remember your amazing things that you've done, your wonderful deeds? And we see that that individual praise in verse 1 turns communal in verse 11. He says, sing praises to Yahweh who sits enthroned in Zion, tell among the peoples his deeds. So he's not just individually recounting 
the work that God has done, it turns into communal praise. And this is why it's so important that we be together, that we sing together, that we share in the Lord's Supper together, that everything we do here together in community spurs one another on to love and good works. We recount God's wonderful deeds, not just for ourselves, but for one another. And so there's something beautiful when you look around the room as we sing, proclaiming Christ as king, crown him with many crowns, and you see and you know someone who's facing deep hurt, that individual response of thanksgiving with their whole heart of deep praise turns into communal praise when we do it together. We remind one another of the hope that we have, that we worship a God who is enthroned in heaven. As we looked at last week, that is the same God who set the moon and stars in place with his fingers. Verse 14, David says, That I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. Now we'll get to our third point in a little bit, which is remember grace. But again, we see David beholding God. He responds in praise even through and especially through the hurt. And I know a lot of you know that hurt. Now I know how easy it is to slip into thinking, I don't feel this way. I must not be a good worshiper. That's where I say we are all exceptional, exceptional at worshiping. We just often worship the wrong thing. Our worship is often misguided. Our attention goes somewhere. We just don't shift our gaze to the right place. But David models that we need to shift our gaze to the right place. We need to behold a greater glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That by beholding God, we're transformed, we're changed. David is in deep hurt. He's afflicted. People hate him. He says he's at the gates of death. Yet he recounts God's wonderful deeds. He is led to praise God with thanksgiving with his whole heart. And I appreciate that, that David maps it out for us. He doesn't just give us the goal without the recipe. The goal, right, wholehearted thanksgiving and worship. The recipe, how to get there, recount and remember God's wonderful deeds. We need to look at his majestic creation like we considered last week. We need to look at his work through the history of the world by reading the Bible. We need to listen to and share stories of God at work. This is why it's such an encouragement to hear one another's stories of how God's at work in their lives. That's one of my favorite parts about our Sunday evening prayer services, hearing somebody share their testimony or share what God's been teaching them. What an encouragement that is for us. That's how we recount God's wonderful deeds. And this is why reading biographies can be such an enriching experience. You gotta get past some of the old-timey language. But we can look and see God's work and wonderful deeds through the lives of others. If you were like me, though, we can get this so wrong. We don't recount God's deeds. We don't remember God in the world he created. And so instead of recounting God or remembering God, we forget God. And this leads us to our second thing to remember this morning, remembering sin. So remember God, remember sin. Now for the kids or anyone who's been working through the New City Catechism questions, 
we've bumped into this question. I don't remember what week it was, but what is sin? Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, not being or doing what he requires in his law. Again, sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, not being or doing what he requires in his law. Look at verse 17. The wicked shall return to Sheol, the realm of the dead, all the nations that, remember God? No, forget God. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. And this is the opposite of what we need to be doing, the opposite of what we see David model. Now, David, again, we've talked about this before, was far from a perfect man, far from a perfect man. But in this instance, he models that we need to recount, remember God, not forget God. But we do it anyway. We sin and we sin and we sin. We forget God and the world he created. We looked at this, you know, a few weeks ago in Psalm 7. We looked at the self-defeating, or we talked about the boomerang effect of sin. The boomerang effect of sin. And here we see it again in verses 15 and 16. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. Yahweh has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Sin is futile. It's self-defeating. We talked about Wiley Coyote and his efforts against the roadrunner, but the rock falls on his head. He falls off the cliff. He falls into the hole. That's the self-defeating nature of sin. And so we reject, we ignore God in the world he created, and we shoot ourselves in the foot. We fall into the pit. We're snared in our own net. And we run into another theme that we've looked at before through the whole Bible and even through the Psalms a number of times already, that God is a righteous judge. This isn't new material, but it's worth repeating, it's worth recounting, and it's worth remembering. The penalty for rebellion against God is death. God is absolutely perfect, holy, and just. And it would be unjust for him to ignore our rebellion. This justice is described strongly as we read through in verses 3 through 8. But the central vein of this speaking of God's justice is that it is righteous justice. That God is a righteous judge. Look at verses 7 through 8. But Yahweh sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. Now, like many, it was a confrontation with his own sin and God's wrath against sin, his judgment that led hymn writer Robert Robinson to give his heart to Christ. Uh, Robert had a hard life, and in his late teen years and early adult years, he gave up his life to drinking and gang life. But through God's providence, Robert ended up hearing George Whitfield preach, one of the greatest preachers of all time, one of the goats of preaching. That night, uh, he had preached from Matthew 3, 7, which says this, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees Coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And this preacher, Whitfield, burst into tears. He said, Oh, my hearers, the wrath to come, the wrath to come. 
And Robinson felt like Whitfield was preaching directly to him. And he eventually trusted in Christ alone for his salvation as he came face to face with his sin, when he remembered his sin. And this is why it's important for us to remember sin and its consequences. We might not like it, but it's important. We must not slip into closing our eyes or our ears to this reality. We all have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. And no, if you're not a Christian, I'm not just talking to you here. Christians, we can't get to a place where we think we've already arrived. If we neglect to confess our sin, we're in big trouble. We fall into the pit that we've dug. 1 John 1, 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now it is important to remember sin, its reality, its consequences, but not to stay there. Not to stay there. John goes on to write in the very next verse, 1 John 1, 9, says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this leads us right into our third point. We remember God, we remember sin, but we remember grace. Remember grace. David praises God. He thanks God that he is a righteous judge and he praises him that he is a God of grace. Verse 13 and the first bit of 14 says, be what? Gracious to me. O Yahweh, see my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises. David is recounting and remembering God's wonderful deeds, his goodness and his grace. And it isn't anchored in all that David could do, how good of a person he could be. But we see that his recounting in verse 14 is dependent on God lifting him up in verse 13. It's only by God's help that we can remember God's grace. It was Robert Robinson who famously wrote the words of Come Thou Found. And the final lines read this, Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. This is remembering grace. We all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, but in his mercy, amazingly, God sent his son into the world to live the righteous life that you and I could never live, yet die the death that you and I deserve. He did that so that we could be made right with God. He rose again on the third day, demonstrating that God's wrath, his righteous judgment and justice had been satisfied and that we could be made right with God by turning from our sin and trusting in Christ alone as our righteousness. That is the good news. Jesus, who willingly went to the cross for us, cried out to God, said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's, it's through that lens and through that sacrifice that we can read verses like verse 10. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Yahweh, have not forsaken those who seek you. Jesus was forsaken so that you and I don't have to be. 
Jesus faced the penalty for sin so that you and I don't have to, that we could be seen as righteous by God. If you have questions about what that means, the implications of that for your life, if you have doubts, come talk to me. I would love to share more about this hope that we have, this good news, how we can remember grace. Come talk to me or talk to any member around you. And I trust that they would be encouraged uh, to point you to the grace that they know, the hope that they know, that they would recount God's wonderful deeds and work in their heart. And so it's recalling God's grace and goodness that binds our heart to Christ. We continue to sin, but God continually holds us fast, as we sang earlier. This is the good news, that in our wandering, we rely on him to seal our hearts. He does the work that we can't do. We can't save ourselves. And when we fear our faith will fail, he will hold us fast. We need God to tune our hearts to sing and remember his grace. And the good news is we don't need to and we can't do it on our own. God is our refuge. He is our stronghold. Another theme that we've run into through the Psalms so far. But we see it again in verse 9. Yahweh is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. That's good news. He alone is our stronghold. He alone is our refuge in times of trouble. And so as we looked at in the very first week of the Psalms, there are two ways to live. There is the way of the righteous who delights in God's instruction and is known, can be known, and is remembered by God. And then there's the way of the wicked who isn't rooted in anything. That, you know, when the storms come, they're blown away like chaff. They cannot stand in the judgment. But we can know God. We can put our trust in him. We can, as David writes, seek him. And David says that when we do, God is our stronghold. He will not forsake. He will not forget those who seek him. And that's our big idea, and that is the good news. We desperately need God. He promises that even in our forgetfulness, when we forget him, when we sin, he will not forget us. Verse 18, for the needy, aren't we all? shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. We don't get there by getting our act together. We get there by acknowledging our brokenness and running to him. And the very last words of this psalm point us to that kind of humility that we need. Let the nations know that they are but men. We need to be reminded that we are simply broken people, desperately in need of a savior, yet God is mindful of us. Trust in God, he will not forget or abandon you. And so we're going to sing the song, Come Thou Fount, and it has some tricky lyrics, admittedly, and I know people over time have done some different things to try to change the lyrics or work different things out, but I think these lyrics are important, especially as we consider what it means to remember God, remember sin, and remember grace. One of the weirdest lyrics, which I always thought, like, is this a Christmas song? Because you're talking about an Ebenezer. I was thinking we were talking about Ebenezer Scrooge or something. And in the song, Come Thou Found, it says, Here I raise my Ebenezer. What is this all about? What does this mean? Well, this term or this phrase comes from a story back in 1 Samuel, over a thousand years before Christ. It says this, 1 Samuel 7, 12. 
It says, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now, Yahweh has helped us. God had, in the context of that passage, God had just miraculously delivered the Israelites from an attack from the Philistines. And so Samuel set up this rock, this Ebenezer, to commemorate God saving his people. In Hebrew, the word Ebenezer means stone of help. Stone of help. And so Samuel wanted his people not to just remember in that moment, not to just remember the next day, not to remember a year from now, but for generations that when they looked at this stone of help, they would remember that God has been faithful. They would remember God. They would remember their desperation and their sin, and they would remember grace. They didn't deserve to be saved. They had been chronically unfaithful. They were in a vulnerable position, but God, in his mercy, saved them. So they set up this Ebenezer, this stone of help, to recount God's wonderful deeds. And it's through a very similar place that we're here this morning, too. We don't deserve to be saved, yet God, in his mercy, saved us. And it's only by his help that we can be made right with him, by humbling ourselves and coming to him. This is why these lyrics, although they're not common language, they're important for us today as we consider the truths from Psalm 9. Here I raise my Ebenezer, my stone of help. Hither by thy help I come. Like David said, he would give thanks with his whole heart. He would recount, he would remember God's wonderful deeds. And from verse 14, he would rejoice in your salvation. Proclaiming the gospel and God's saving grace is our Ebenezer. It's only by his help that we can come. It's only by his help that we can proclaim and remember his grace. And so remember God. Remember sin. We are desperately in need of a savior. And that savior is Jesus. And when we come face to face with this reality and the penalty of sin, we come face to face too with the hope that we have in Christ Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. And remember grace, prone to wander as we are, recount and remember God's grace. Continually remember that grace. Look to him. Trust him with your heart. Trust him for salvation. He will not forsake those who seek him because someone has been forsaken on your behalf. Let's pray. God, we come to you recounting who you are and what you've done, remembering your wonderful deeds, and we praise you for who you are. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, that we would raise our Ebenezer, that we would remember you, and that the weight of the gift of the gospel would be strengthened as we look and remember our sin. But we wouldn't stay there, that we would remember our sin in light of the glorious gospel that saves and transforms, that we would remember grace. So Father, help us to tune our hearts to sing your praise. In Jesus' name, amen.